Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Jessie Too. I'm Helen Stenbeck. And you're listening to Asian Bitches Down Under. Two Taiwanese Australian sisters, first generation immigrants, and on this podcast, we talk about race, gender, and other issues concerning Asians living in Western societies. So, this week we would like to discuss a topic that might relate to many of you mental health. From the perspective of Asian immigrants in Western nations, so before we commence today's episode, we would like to say that we are not. Um, medical professionals and are not qualified to give advice on mental health. This episode is purely to share our experiences, thoughts, and ideas about what we've uh, seen and living in Australia, and also present you with some research on this area. Of course, we urge our listeners to seek medical professional advice if they have any concerns of their mental health. Uh, would you like to add anything else, Jesse? So yeah, absolutely. Our um, our aim here is to help lift the stigma of mental health that's often present within Asian cultures. And we want to make one those of you out there feel less lonely by sharing our own ideas and experiences regarding this issue. Because I know that often we're kind of like walking around carrying these feelings and we don't really have a vocabulary for it. And it's often this lack of language and expression, this void of a space to recognize things and give it name names that that often at the root is at the root of so much of our own personal turmoils I know that in the past that's what I've struggled with and thinking that I'm going through this alone because of that lack of language yeah absolutely um, so some of the reasons that intrigued me about um, start looking into this topic is that um, personally I have experienced uh, mental health issues and I believe many people at some point of their lives have experienced some sort of mental health issue. So as um, first first generation immigrants in Australia, um, I know the challenges we encounter is pretty much different to say um, kids growing up as the majority of the population. Um, Whether it's traditional conservative parenting styles from our parents, um, or the differences in social interactions we have, and of course, you know, perhaps the racism, social uh, expectations that thrust upon us by um, our often conservative parents. Uh, this can all impact our on our mental health. So early this so early this year, um, I've had the um, privilege to attend a mental health first aider course, and find it really helpful in gaining the fun- fundamental knowledge about mental health and how to assess people who might be showing signs of mental illness. And it was at this um, during this course, I kind of um, associated myself and kind of starting to explore that my past and you know starting to understand that uh, the sort of feelings that I had before it's pretty much what they call the mental illness um, so I strongly encourage listeners to look up this course and we'll put the put the link in the show notes later on our Facebook page 
Um, so Jesse, what do you think about the topic of mental health um, with our heritage and background? Do you think as Asians um, we handle it differently, say differently to like white, white people, kids or the yeah. Western style of parenting? I mean, obviously. Oh yeah, immensely. Um, I think that there's so many factors to it. There's, I think there's a very calcified stigma that exists in Asian society. You know, generally that there's just not much openness and acknowledgement. Um, or even you know, kind of celebration um, of different sorts of people. You know, just just a quick quick example. Um, I know Mum used to tell me that back in Taiwan, people who were wheelchair bound were never seen on the streets. She said that people just hid disabled people indoors, which you know is fucking the most horrendous shit. Um, and it seems to me that in Asian countries, there's a lot of social and political forces at work. So. There's the historical residue of Confucius and all that that encompasses, you know, and there's the idea of living in harmony in a collectivist society. So all these things and all these factors um, factor into one individual's way of life and the choices they make and how they see themselves. If they're struggling with mental illness, this, you know, is a very private thing. It's the most private relationship you have in your own brain and only to yourself. Only to yourself. So... If you're struggling with some form of mental instability or disability, you're not, you know, you're you're taught not to express that. You're not meant to open that out because it's regarded as a weakness. And also, I've heard this as well recently that it can be seen as selfish. You know, like you're burdening those you love by letting your shit out. Um, personally, uh, on a personal note, I started seeing a psychologist when I was 21 uh, for a number of different reasons, but um, I was diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, I had a really unhealthy relationship with food back then. And from then on, uh, I've seen several other therapists. Um, I've seen about 15 in the last 10 years. Uh, For a number of reasons, I moved around a lot. Last year I saw a sex therapist, which was incredible because she helped me gain the language around what I was trying to, um, what I was trying to not solve, but just think about, you know, my relationship with sex. And then after that, I saw a psychotherapist, which was such an unusual experience, um, which I'll talk about in another episode. Uh, But uh, all this professional time with these professionals made me realize that I love therapy because I just love always trying to find a language to talk about things. And I know that um, when I think about therapy, I think about, you know, a rich New York wife of a, you know, stockbroker or someone who just has too much time on her hands, you know, so I'm completely aware of how that might come across. But um, it's been really important for me to figure out all the mess in my head. <laughs> um, but tell me, what about you, Helen? I mean, um, why did you do that course that you were just telling me about? I was invited to do um, a, a eight-week course with a group of women. The course was called um, Woman Empowered Woman. So the one of the trainer... She was certified to run the mental health first aid course. Um, Therefore, she invited everyone to do it. So I I had the opportunity as well. And, you know, I had the time. And I I thoroughly enjoyed the course. Um, That's when I was looking at all the um, notes and the information that was shared. 
during the course that I realized that I definitely had anxiety issues when I was younger, um, particularly during my first two years of high school, um, because I was still in the very um, difficult situation linguistically um, to express myself during through those um, earlier years of high school in Australia. Um, therefore, I was very introvert. I'm still very introvert now. Um, I was very introvert, didn't know how to um, express myself, and I had um, body image issues. Um, on top of that, with a mother who didn't really understand how what I was going through and, you know, puberty and all that, and my symptoms um, during those years was that I terribly didn't want to go to school. I just want to stay at home and I would always throw up um, first thing in the morning or just before going to school. But um, the lack of acknowledgement from my mother really, um, you know, really influenced me, I guess, that, yeah, it kind of actually just made everything worse. And I guess the time just slowly, you know, recovered myself and perhaps I was starting to have friends that um, had a bit of similar issues when I uh, during those times as well. Yeah, so um, that's when I was doing the course that I recognized that, oh gosh, that, you know, I had anxieties when I was at that stage, but I never realized that I had that so-called the turn anxiety popped in my mind when I was, um, you know, say 12 and 13. That's why that I will go straight to, um, as usual, that I usually would look up um, articles and research papers or what we talk about on the podcast. And I found two research papers, one's in Australia and the other one's um, in US, um, which both I found very useful. Um, as you say about the cultural background, the the first research paper I'm just going to briefly talk about. Um, the first one is called Mental Health Research and Evaluation in Multicultural Australia, Developing a Culture, Cultural Inclusion. Um, this, one, this paper was uh, published in 2013. Um, it's basically looking at the governance and the policies um, around Asian Australian mental health, whether or not that it had been... Um, worked well enough or appropriately for the population because um, looking at the uh, proportion of the population, most likely the overseas bonds is projected to be by 32% by uh, 2015. So the purpose of the study was to examine uh, what is already known about the mental health of immigrants and the refugee communities in Australia um, whether or not that the research in Australia for mental health has paid um, adequate attention to the fact of the cultural and linguistic diversity. Um, the review of the a lot of Australian research on mental health of immigrants and refugee communities, um, their patterns of the mental health service use generated uh, findings that are very highly variable and the work is fragmented and usually very small scales. And also they are, mo um, I believe, probably because, you know, it's very hard to pick up, um, say, for surveying immigrants to actually openly talk about it, you know. 
um, perhaps I'll bring it up a bit later because I did find a couple um, articles written about this area of the stigma. Um, so coming back to the research paper, um, the usage, um, it, it says there's a bro broadly consistent pattern of lower rates of utilization of specialist public mental health by immigrants and refugees. Of course, again, that, you know, it's probably because um, there's no acknowledgement or recognition of mental health issues in our communities. Um, and uh, um, of course, later that, you know, at the conclusion of this um, paper, there are a couple of recommendations, including that, um, you know, to to be having a more bit more awareness of the mental health for immigrants and refugees. The recommendation including that um, the, uh, the studies and the research needs to be expanded um, and also that the uh, inclu in inclusion of the culture and linguistic diversity um, backgrounds of the, um, perhaps say, doctors and the therapists that needs to understand more about their patients. Um, on, on this point, I would like to stress that there is actually an institution I found uh, established by St. Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne, uh, the Department on Asian Australia Mental Health. So they partner with leading health organisations um, in the Asian countries to improve mental health and also connecting the, the Asian institutions in research and training, which is fantastic. Uh, from what I'm seeing from the website is there's China, Malaysia, Korea, and Japan. Not quite sure if they probably have more. Yeah. And the second paper that um, I was I, I talked about um, this one's uh, actually a bit more earlier paper. This one's published in two thousand and seven. It's called Immigration Related Factors and Mental Disorders Among Asian Americans. Um, so this study was focused on the factors that relate to nativity and immigration as possible correlations of the mental disorders. So um, one of the factors that this paper brought up was the English proficiency, which associated with mental health for Asian um Asian Americans, and particularly for Asian men, uh, if who that speaks um, English proficiently, um, or generally have a lower rate of having the like a mental disorder compared to um, non-proficient speakers. Um, it, it's pretty logic, I think, it, when you don't speak the language of the a certain country, it, it it's a bit hard to. I, I guess you feel. Well, I guess that unpacks a lot of other things, like, for instance, why that happens. That's a phenomenon we can go into as well, you know, like why why um, perhaps immigrant families have a higher proportion of conservative arrangements around their marriage. You know, like you said, like our own parents, our mother uh, came to Australia when she was in her mid-30s and never worked again, right? I mean... Even in Taiwan, um, she, our mother worked until she was 24. She got married when she was 24 and she worked as a banker from the age of 20 to 24. And then she went when she got pregnant with you um, at the age of 24, she stopped working. I guess that just makes me think, well, if, if, the, if this research paper that you, 
you just spoke about found that men who uh, were lacking in proficiency in the language suffered more severely from mental illness than men who were more proficient. Well, then what does that say about the women who have zero um, interactions, you know, with with the wider world? Yeah. And when you, uh, I guess it, I think if you divide a, if you talk about like a couple as in just a, you know normal normal um, husband and wife, um, when you have male so-called breadwinners that goes out and work, and obviously he needs to go and have a certain standard of the language um, skill in the host country, to um, and that gives him the ability to reach out to people. And perhaps, um, whereas you compare to the wife who stay at home most of the days, you have a very limited social interactions, you know, with other people, unless that you go out um, to actually put yourself into the situation to, you know, to speak the second language. Um, we should also tell our listeners that, um, tell tell everyone when exactly you started high school, like what year? It was 96, right? I think it was 90. 96? Uh, no. Because he graduated right? in 99. Oh, yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we, we arrived in Australia when, when it was 92. Two, yeah. And how old and were you years. in 1992? I was 11. Okay, so yeah, so our listeners like mentally calculating my age now. <laughs> no, no, that's yeah. okay, and and mine mine as well. But I guess I wanted. I think it's important to bring that up because in the nineties we didn't even now. I mean, I often harp on about this, but in Australia we don't have. It's not common rhetoric to talk about race and Asian culture and you know and mental illness like these kind of conversations have only been stewing um, in the last couple of years. And so we're talking about you being at the height of your kind of hormonal change as a young girl, yeah, going through puberty in the 90s when, you know, these these are aspects of language were severely, were severely um, scarce. I mean, even now, I have to say, even today in... April of 2020, I find when people bring up racial issues on a large public platform, people are still, I don't know if, if you've experienced this, but people are still very reluctant to use the term white. And so like, you know, it's completely normal to say black or white in, in America when you're talking about race or anything, right? It's just seeped into their cultural lexicon. But in Australia, like for instance, a couple of months ago, I was at a converse, a talk a public conversation where um, an Indigenous woman was talking to a largely white crowd about um, the history of genocide in this country. And then she was mentioning the fact of the crowd being very white, but she did not use the word white. She said the, do she said the dominant majority. So like even then, even little things like that, I feel like we're sort of tiptoeing around people um, to not offend anyone by using black or white. And I just, I don't, I don't think, I don't know. Or some, sometimes people say Caucasian, you know, or Anglo to soften, so, yeah, to soften the blow somehow. 
Um, but that, that always irritates me. I, I don't know why. Um, I just think, like, call it what it is. Okay, so let's break it down to different areas of mental concerns. Um, apart from the data and to statistics and also the governance around mental health, um, what areas do you think we should mention more, which is more relevant to more most Asian immigrants? Um, to me, in particular, the social and family factors. Um, so as children who are first-generation immigrants, um, you know, we've we got to think what kind of challenges do we, you know, do we encounter mentally? So there's an article that I um, looked up, which is written by Alexander Penn, uh, published last month, last April, uh, indicated that um, teenagers being forced to study hours upon end, being punished for failing to meet their um, parents' expectations, and the instill of fear of failure, pressure to marry young and pump out kids, and the overall lack of empathy and understanding from older generations to the young people of today. Um, I think it's all honestly troubling to hear some of the stuff people have gone through and it's no surprise that uh, conclusion of many stories and with a, um, some variation of that they finally had a breakdown. Um, from, uh, from my own perspective, uh, I believe that parenting styles of many Asian parents, it's particularly a huge factor contributing to mental well-being issues you know, for Asian kids. Uh, even until now, I, I feel like um, I, I've got two kids myself and sometimes you have to tiptoe around how to manage individual kids. Um, I don't want to use the word academic, but just use your school progress because every individual kids behave and respond differently to you know what they've been taught and how they learn. But I, I, I definitely have seen and hear um, parents that will be concerned about just particular small issues of their kids' learning. Like, oh, my God. We're talking about Asian parents, yeah. Like, oh, my God, um, my child can't do addition, you know, with its single digits. Or um, oh, he, he or she writes poorly in their handwriting. And I just thought that, okay, but your kid is like five, you know. I, I'm not. I, I'm not there to blame the parents, but because they grew, they grew up, had the expectations from their parents, and they picked up that trait and believe that my kids should be taught and learn this way as well. You know, and you know, there's a phrase, um, 不要输在起跑点, as in, uh. Don't let don't. I don't want my kids to lose at the starting point. You know, you have it's like you, they talk about the whole thing is a race, as in you know, like a competitive race. That I don't. I'm not gonna let my kids to, um, you know, uh, have a slow start. So I'm gonna just push it and push it and push it. <laughs> Sometimes I think that oh my god, my 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 child is still writing backwards. You know, the numbers. Sometimes my child writes six backwards or nine backwards, and I, I like. And you're doing like a couple of digits of multiplications or what already, so I, I don't know. Yeah, what what um, do you think is the source of these parents' concern? You kind of touched on it by, by saying that this is the way their parents had 
taught them when they were young. So they might, you know, un- instinctively or unconsciously mirror these actions. But what else do you think might be at the root of their concern? Okay, I think it still comes down to material wealth being, as in whether or not um, they look at the bigger picture. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's nothing wrong with looking into bigger pictures of um, knowing that your kids will eventually have a good career, uh, have a stable income, and you don't have to worry about you know money and things like that. But I think um, with academic progress, um, parents have just been made to believe that unless that you... Um, I'm talking about experience of Taiwan's education system, of course, um, but perhaps it will be similar to other Asian countries. Um, what I've known that if if you don't do well in your academic grades, that you're pretty much a failure. You know, you've been labeled as a failure in society. But whereas in the Western, I'm comparing um, the education system in Australia, whereas people don't really look down at the people who does trade. You know, like, but in Taiwan, there was a story that I heard, um, just like a motorcycle mechanics, um, just one day he was just fixing like this lady's motorcycle and his hands was all greasy and oily. Of course, his fingers will be black. And the lady who had her um, son with her waiting for the mechanic to fix up the motorbike and the lady goes to the son saying that, oh, um, see see what happens if you don't study hard, you'll end up like him. I mean, it's 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 really terrible. I mean, they, they still earn de- decent income. It's not like they don't earn anything, you know. And it's just a, like the social mentality about people who does trade is, I don't know, the status is not as high. Yeah. Yeah, Asian cultures are very status-driven. Yeah. Well, like I that I I don't know if I, I don't know if how much I would warrant my own comment, which I just made seconds ago. I mean, every culture I think is have have, have very large cohorts of status driven individuals. So I don't know. I'll have to think that through. But um, mm. okay. So I I mentioned before that I was talking about um I'll. I was going to talk about a reference. Yeah, parents. Um, so there's yeah. a reference I'm going to make now is to show how I'm going to use the word, the Chinese word "bian tai." Yeah, do it. Which is oh, and also we should always speak the bilingual okay, on this podcast cool. as well. Um, there's a reference of how "bian tai" um, in tra- in literal translation into English is um, "metamorphosis." Is that how you say the word? Oh, metamorphosis! Yeah. Really, yeah, bian tai. Of, oh, it's so weird because mum used to use that word, and I always pervert. thought it meant like yeah, pedophile. it's pervert or pedophile. You, there, there's oh, different pervert, different meanings, right. definitely. But in this case, it's metamorphosis <laughs> of how Asian parents or parents in general who just expect their children to have a high achievement in their academic and career accomplishment. I strongly suggest um, for our listeners, if you have time, of course, um, there's a Chinese drama that is on. Hopefully, it's still on Netflix. That. Uh, the Chinese is called 你的孩子不是你的孩子. So the translation is on children, but my more literal translation is should be called Your children are not your children. So the drama is based on a fantastic um, young Chinese female writer, uh, Wu Xiaole, 
Um, so she presented uh, a couple of stories on semi-fictional characters on the extreme expectations of the parents on their children's academic achievement, um, which is somehow still seems normal for a lot of Asian parents. Um, here, I would actually like to share a tweet um, credit of JV underscore draws um, that I saw the other day too. Uh, it's very relevant to kids of Asian background. Um, <laughs> it's a bit funny, I feel. Um, it says that Asian parents are going to shelter and cuddle you and not let you do anything, even vaguely independent, uh, your whole your whole life. And when you reach 20 and don't know anything about the real world, they are going to call you useless and get mad. Um, to be fair here, I'm not blaming the parents um, because I'm a parent myself. But I think um, definitely how you parent your children will result the consequences of your future relationship with your children. Um, so what do you think, Jess? Um, was there any academic pressure? Um, was academic pressure one of your stress indicators when growing up? Um, I often think about how lucky I was in this sense because, no, our parents were not tiger parents at all. Um, I was stressed about the most boring thing ever. Like, I literally filled pages like volumes and volumes of diary pages with um I'm so bad at math I'm gonna fail at math and therefore fail at my life like literally I thought there was a direct correlation between me being bad at math and me being completely worthless I have no idea where that came from obviously you know in hindsight I can see thanks to people like Andrew Yang you know making deeper grooves in that stupid stereotype about Asians supposed to be ugh, being good at math. I hate that. But, um, yeah, no, it was – our parents were very, very, very compassionate, I think, when it comes – when it came to academic um, – our, our academic abilities, I suppose. But um, I, I want to say that as – a teacher. I was a teacher for about nine, ten years before I became a journalist, and I taught um, mainly in private boys' schools. And what I've found in the five or six independent boys' schools I've taught at, and keep in mind these are schools where the fees are around thirty k a year, so they're ridiculous. So I'm only teaching boys whose parents are in the top like one percent you know, in society uh, and wealthy and privileged and all those things. And without a doubt, in every single school, boys' school that I've taught at, there is always – I taught music, by the way – there was always at least one or two kid I would have in my class, an Asian kid who was the sweetest thing in the world. And he would inevitably always have – like really strict parents and and um and I would what would happen is I would see I would meet these parents at parent teacher interviews and the child would always sit next to them and we would be having a conversation and I would see the way that the child would kind of shrink next to their parents while their parents kind of like if ever I gave any kind kind of constructive feedback the child would always grow smaller physically or like um, hunch their shoulders and and the parents would just kind of like beat them up 
right next to them and and also like right after and then throughout the throughout the years I would get to know these gorgeous gorgeous like really charming really cool really like these Asian kids these boys I met were not the sort of were definitely not uh the horrible kind of nerdy stereotypical men that boys that we often kind of think exist because because we have yeah because we have ridiculous um a ridiculous lack of cultural representation of um, Asian men in general um but but these young boys were very very much like popular kids you know these were popular dudes and they just happened to be Asian because they were born here but they still always had this kind of same expression of or same kind of they always carried around with them when I saw them in class this very invisible insidious sort of heavy weight on their shoulders so and and if they got like 97 out of 100 they would still feel really bad uh and and I could never really I could never really make them feel better because they were always playing to their parents uh rules I suppose or you know um they were always tiptoeing around conditions which their parents have set for them and it really always broke my heart like and what what I'm trying to say is what what I'm trying to say is what really shocked me was that in every school there was always the exact same type of little boy and the exact same type of parents and they they always they were like I said they were always Asian they were always like really beautiful and smart and uh, well-intentioned young boys who had this kind of very distinct expression when I spoke to them about um, how they can improve like I I guess it's hard for me I'm still trying to process these thoughts I guess hell but as someone who's not yet a parent um, and someone who has been in constant contact with young people for 10 years I I have to say that what I would hope if I ever became a parent would be that I never tethered this idea of academic success to how my son or daughter is as a human being you know that is infinitely more important for me um, as someone who is my age an adult and who is someone who wants to live in a world in a few generations time with younger with the with the younger generation who can be good people and not necessarily memorize the fucking periodic table you know oh yeah i understand yeah yeah it's more important to be that's what i said well at least that, that what i've been always saying to my kids or what i my expectation for my kids is the kindness that they have rather than you know um uh, academic achievement but um i guess many asian parents that they put you know the stability of life before anything else uh, and also we can also agree that um what alexander penn mentioned in the article that asian culture plays value on family rather than the individual um 
and everything that you do in the name of your family. And so if you if you don't follow what your family had expected expected of you, um, shame is ingrained deep in traditional Asian values and also within language barriers and the fear of being stigmatized as someone who is crazy. Um, so when you have a certain breakdown for the men, you know, mental well-being, um, when you think that you should seek treatment, but what you get is a bubbling cauldron of mental health issues that's just been remained unfixed. Yeah. Uh, would you like to put some of your thoughts into talking about shame? Um, I mean, obviously, it's a huge thing. Uh, and personally, I love talking about shame. It's like shame, sex and loneliness are my favorite things to talk about because it's often seen as the most unsavoring things to talk about, right? But I'm someone who loves to dive into the uncomfortable because I think it's often there in our most uncomfortable selves. Are we able to see the truest and therefore the most beautiful versions of ourselves? Um, when it comes to shame, I think it operates on an especially violent and harsh level among Asian communities and cultures because it's like the easiest way to murder someone's individuality, right? So so you and I, we've talked about how Asian society is, we all know this, it's collective rather than individualistic. So what's you think about what's the most efficient way to create a stable collective society where most people function on the same narratives and ideas? You kill their individuality, right? You compress them into the identical robots. You make them think there's something wrong with them fundamentally if they don't do X, Y, or Z. Like, for example, and this isn't just in Asia, this happens the world over, a woman, let's take a woman who is 40 years old and single and without a child. Um, so she's often probably received into a space by strangers with a lot of suspicion. We think, oh, what's wrong with her? Why isn't she married? Why doesn't she have a child? I mean, uh, let's take another example. A man who was 55, unmarried, unpartnered. If he goes for a job interview at a, some law firm, say, and they ask him about his family and he tells them that he's single, he's without child, they'll probably start scratching their heads and s suspicion will rise because this man sitting in front of them does not fit into the narrative they're used to. They're only used to one sort of 55-year-old man, uh, a father perhaps, a husband, a college graduate, you know. I mean, obviously, um, if he's going for a law job, probably. Um, and so because they're accustomed to such a man, they'll start filling in the gaps for themselves. They'll say, oh, he's probably gay, he's a pedophile, he's a serial killer, he's mentally unstable or whatever. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying that men who are 55 and unmarried and without child are any of those things. What I'm saying is that in society, we don't have a man who ticks all those boxes ever being celebrated or represented. And so anyone who comes into our day and presents themselves with those things, we often don't know how to engage with them. And those people end up feeling like there's something wrong with them because they're being treated differently, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can definitely also, relate to that, yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah, and you. also just back to, I guess, the whole rope, you know, the Taiwanese sort of... I mean, our parents grew up in Taiwan in the 60s and 70s and even now, I, I'm not sure actually. I probably, I think definitely it's changed, but 
um, it's it's an it's a culture that values like in China it values um collectivity and being in a group and this you know mentality that fitting in can bring the nation state a lot of wealth and prosperity you know doing your part doing your due diligence pays dividends kind of thing and that this and I'm mentioning this because our father Murphy he um when in the in the last like 30 years I've asked him time and time again at different intervals in my life why did we immigrate to Australia like I find that I find that question so fascinating and I'm always trying to extract some reason from him and what I've learned now after the after so many years is that every time I ask him the the answer always changes so it could be like it it was it it could be like in the beginning it was oh because I wanted you to grow up in a society in a in a better um education system like my father our father really hated the way Taiwanese students were inculcated and enculturated in this very robotic exam focused um environment and I love that my father that I love that our father had enough sort of love for us that he would want us to be our own individual selves and he thought that a western nation was the only way where we could thrive in that way like I I think the reason why I'm so obsessed with asking dad about this question is because I'm so grateful that he gave us this life here in Australia like it's almost like I don't think I would I mean, I definitely would not be the same person if we stayed in Taiwan. But when I, mm-hmm. I, I yeah, that's something that Dad always mentioned. <laughs> yeah, I think when I asked Dad that question, why did we move to Australia? Underneath that question, I think is another layer, and it's a deeper layer, uh, a deeper at the core. And I think what I'm asking is maybe like, why was I born? Maybe on a more existential uh, layer. I don't know. Like I'm, yeah, that's I want to know more philosophical. Yeah, philosophical. Like, why am I the person I am, and what happened? What happened in your brain that led you to the decision to give us the life that we have today? And also, going back to I guess the sort of ways in which parents tie a lot of Asian parents tie in um, a human their child's value as a human being with academic success it's because we haven't really formulated a better way to to kind of set out how the society is structured so for instance obviously if you are going to have your heart opened by a human being you would want that human being to be of a relative intelligence right so your a heart surgeon obviously needs to be academically oh, I wouldn't say academically a heart surgeon would obviously need to have um the qual- the certain qualities in order to be fit enough to operate on you because it's literally a matter of life and death right and i guess what i'm trying to say is that we haven't worked out a better way to uh to work out strategize 
how to pick our surgeons or how to pick our judges or lawyers or um, what's a incredibly highly cerebral job. Um, engineers, I don't know, accountants. Engineers, accountants. Um, yeah, and they're all they're so all very objective, cerebral, focused, cerebrally. Yeah, yeah, like. Um, in my head, I think writers are very cerebral, but the best writers are not people who say know exactly the framework of a human heart that a heart surgeon knows, you know? Um, so I guess it's, and it, and, and I, I guess because we're talking about Asian cultures, it's inevitably linked to this idea of having, um, financial stability and prosperity obviously and so traditionally and historically those jobs like lawyers and doctors and engineers and accountants they've been uh, well-paid jobs right and so if you're someone who wants to seek validation through those a sort of time stamp guaranteed ways of getting approved by society then you will go and study law and become a doctor uh, sorry a lawyer you will go and you know like make those ways towards a pathway like you will make those conservative steps towards being someone who who you know ticks all the boxes like I guess what I'm saying is like there's a clear pathway for you, you know, like, yeah, you just I, I, have to like, study as in all prepared for you. You just like, have to follow it. Yeah. Like I know a lot of lawyers who are really, really deeply creative people, but they have ended up in like dead shit, fucking boring jobs where they are being so super fucking lacerated, but they're also so super fucking lacerated in a way where like they're getting approval you know, like they're they're having senior partners take them out to drinks and they have fucking ridiculous salaries where they're 26 years old and and they they can go to brunch every single day. They don't have to worry about, you know, vacationing um, in winter and summer. And, you know, they they get they get to sleep with whoever's on their team like they like week after week, like as in what I'm saying is they have sexual currency, they have um they have sexual currency they have financial currency they have social currency like and and all they did was fall into these usual i wouldn't say traps but usual means of validation you know yeah like oh you get a card that says i'm now the junior associate at some crazy bad shit like um law firm it's so easy to find validation through those conservative means and it makes me and it breaks my heart because these human beings are so creative and sweet and beautiful and they can do so much to affect the world and yet they choose to go down this pathway of uh corporate validation being corporate corp you know they've they're they're sort of being inside that world of corporate law gives them the social status that perhaps they lack you know when they were growing up they didn't have validation enough that they felt maybe or it's and they're deeply insecure like there's this term I heard years ago that 
Well, see, yeah, there's a mental, mental ill, mental well-being oh, or mental problem coming totally, inside yeah. when you have everything secured, but, but yeah, you, the, you're the mentally was, insecure. Um, you know, was it highly insecure overachievers? You know, like and there's like ninety percent of uh, judges associates are insecure overachievers. You know, because they they have found a way in order to essentially um, have people praise them and all they had to do was undergo these very historically entrenched and uh, historically... It's a very unoriginal way to live a life. Um, But it's unoriginal... But they don't care that it's unoriginal as long as they're being validated. Um... It makes them feel like they're doing something in the world, I suppose. And that's that's kind of, I mean, you know, I guess what I'm saying is like kudos to them if that's really what will make them happy. But for me and my snobbery and judgment, um, it, it's always seemed like a very superficial superficial victory when you tick the boxes that someone else has drafted up you know like it's that's why I'm really obsessed with artists and writers and people who are not financially driven because they have will have more struggle they have more struggle yeah and I like people who have faced more adversity because they're just somehow kinder people um and more compassionate but uh these people who are not financially driven and I'm going to sound very judgy here, obviously they seem to have been able to, um, find a way to say, fuck you to all those boxes and make their own sort of terms for their life. And what, what matters to them, they're going to live up to those ideals. And it's hard because obviously they're not the mainstream ideals, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just uh, it's the sense of how you want to do something just for yourself rather than like like yeah, you said a it's... box that's been ticked, and then you just follow the path of you know anyone or of your family that's paved for you in front and that's what I'm trying to say. I think that word paved like it's a well all these a lot of jobs that have high that carry high social status have been jobs that have been paved by decades and decades of other people and you just climb that fucking ladder like you just climb those stairs and you will reach without much without many barriers where you want to go i mean obviously there are different forms of barriers like it's more competitive for one you know there are more there are more full-time lawyers than there are full-time writers um, um, okay, so now, now what I want to dig in is um, the mental issues that's related to uh, gender and particularly from the Asian woman's perspective. Uh, so from my own observation, Jesse, you may have a different view, so jump in any time. So myself growing up as an eldest child and female, um, the expectation was high, but the supports were given minimal. Um, so put into perspective, uh, uh, in my uh, one of my earliest memory was being a girl was being taught to stay quiet, whereas my younger brother had the chance to speak up. 
Um, I remember the most hurtful words that came out from our mother was that um, she told me that she fainted after giving birth to me when the doctor told her it's a girl. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, I do not know this story. Uh, Are you serious? Yeah. Um, What what do you think um, gender bias plays in a big part in our mental health and I do, I do believe many Asian female will feel the same too, the unfairness we've experienced in the society that had always favoured boys over girls and the establishment of many constraints for females. Um, on the other hand, um, the academic achievement that many Asian parents hold for their sons is absolutely insane. Like I said before. Um, do you think it's higher? It's definitely higher because they've had, they have the social expectation of, you know, male needs to provide and that's not going to change. Like, you know, like what we, what we talked about last week in Tiger's Hell, you know, the dad was questioning that the daughter's partner is not earning enough when she's already earning enough. But he, he, he thinks that, you know, nah, you know, but he's not stable. So it's so bizarre. Don't you think? Like, I would love to provide for my husband. I would love that. That's just so beautiful. Yeah, so, so, the, so the mentality is still, it's still not, there's not a equality there. Um, yeah, I think the gender issue okay, can I say, a big, play a big part in our so, mental I don't know, I feel like yeah. this could open up so many different doors. Like, are we talking about are we talking about the difference mm-hmm. in the way that Asian women experience mental illness compared to Asian men? Is that what we're talking about? What 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 are you trying to say about... Are you saying that your mental illness might have been caused by the very severe gender barriers and discrimination in Asian cultures? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm trying to express. As in, and then the first um, bias comes from our own parents, which is kind of sad, you know, to think about it. But um, I, I don't want to put the blame on them because that's how they experienced when they were growing up as well. You know, I often hear our mother say, like when we were still living in home, that she would say all her seven brothers have this and that and she's the only one that has to do all the chores but I found it absolutely ama- uh, like astonishing that she would complain about that. But she would still come back and look at me as a daughter and say that, yeah, you go and do another chores. You know, I-, I was just thinking, why can't you just break? Like now I'm a parent myself. I was just keep thinking that why can't you break the cycle, you know? And yeah. Yeah, so our mother is one of seven children. My incredible ama. Like... <laughs> <laughs> like, oh my god, I, I don't know how I don't even know how to have one child, let alone seven. And fucking, buff. you just let them run around in the rice field. <laughs> oh my gosh. Anyway, um, so our mother is one of seven, and she's the only daughter. She comes in sixth, and she grew up on a farm, and she ha she has always held deeply conservative ideas about what a girl should do in the house and what a boy has leeway to do around the house, um, jobs, assigned jobs. Um, but I guess if you ask me about whether or not 
uh, me being Asian has ever has exacerbated any form of mental illness in my life. Um, I guess, obviously, for myself and me being so so aware and so attuned of so tuned into my my identity as a woman and as an Asian. I can't separate the two. Um, but when you talk about that, I, uh, when you talk about that memory of our mother saying to you that she fainted when she found out that you were a girl when you came out, do you consider that a traumatic memory for you? Mm, I didn't think that was traumatic. I had other traumatic <laughs> childhood memories. But I think that was hurtful, but not so much traumatic because I, I, I understand the culture background she's coming from. And she did later explain that because all the other aunties, their firstborn were all boys. So she probably feel pressured to have firstborn as a boy as well. So that's the overall pressure. I wouldn't blame her for that, but that was hurtful, you know. And if you want to talk about, if you want to dig into about childhood trauma, I think trauma comes in at different, you know, forms. And um, some incidents might not be considered important or serious. Could Yeah, could be traumatic. Um, like you just asked me about the childhood traumatic um, incident. I'll say that um, I, I want to share my experience first and I'll ask you. Um, was that uh, I remember when I was about six or seven that my friend, my, my classmate asked me whether or not I want to adopt a puppy because one of the dog has given birth. And I, of course, eagerly, I say yes. And I, I remember begging our mother in a hair salon because I knew that it, it was a bit of a manipulation because I knew if I do it in a public area, <laughs> That I she will eventually say yes. Can I just say and that you're because... saying it's manipulation, <laughs> but you can reframe it and say, in saying that's actually just very smart tactic. Oh <laughs> yeah, as a child, yeah. as a yeah. six year old, yeah. Jesus. So yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> so it was at the public area, so I had to beg her and cry and winch while she was doing her hair. Of course, she just wanted you know get it get it over, and all the other ladies in the salons kind of starting to help me out, saying, "Oh yeah, just let her have a dog. You know what's wrong with that." Yeah, and eventually she said yes. So next day, I bought back a dog. Like, our mum was so surprised. Like, she didn't think that would go through it. So I spent the afternoon, like, playing with the dog, carrying it, and then, like, just wiping the pee that the dog just did in the, like, the lounge room. And I, I can't remember how I went to bed, like, night, but I remember leaving it in our lounge room and went upstairs and sleep. And, um... You know, from now, like our mother will probably give you a different story, but this is what I remember. The next day I got up and the, the puppy was gone. Yeah. And I remember going to school and then coming back home and asking our mom that, oh, oh, where's the puppy, you know? And she said, she told me that the puppy ran out of the door and she couldn't get it. But um, I, I actually asked, I went to ask one of the workers in our, you know, family company, um, do you know what happened to my puppy? And uh, one of the worker told me that, oh, um, you, you, uh, I don't know how to tell you this, but I think your mom just 
took the puppy out. Yeah, so that's that that's one of the traumatic experiences. Why do you I think have. why do you think so it, I have why do you think it is traumatic? Um I think one thing is uh losing something in that age that I feel like it's my possession in my possession and I had looked forward for so long having like a puppy and having something to care for it. You know, because our parents back in that day when I was six or seven, that our parents worked day and night. You, you, I literally don't have a connection with our parents during that time. And having a puppy... Yeah, so our parents were um, business yeah. owners of this rather large business, which we won't go um, into. Yeah. But, oh, I didn't know that, Helen. Like, because yeah. I guess I wasn't even born. I think you were born, you were very um, young. Because so you, when I was seven, you were probably oh. just one or two, yeah. And right, yeah, but yeah, I'm. You, you, you've always said that they just never had time. Yeah, for Yeah, they hey? never had time for us when the you know business expanded and things like that. Anyway, um, one thing was uh, the loss of my position. You know, I, that I care so much, mm. and second was that mm. uh, our mother lied to me. You know, I, I believe that she mm. lied to me, but she didn't want to tell me the truth. Why do you think she lied? Um, I don't know. I don't want to speak for her, so I don't know why. But from me being the, as a parent, I think that from my understanding of our own mother, I think that it was probably she thought it was too big of a responsibility for a seven-year-old to look after a puppy. And she didn't have time. No, but that She doesn't, doesn't have the time to yeah. help me out. or mm. No. But that doesn't answer the question, which is, why do you think she lied oh, to you? I honestly don't know. Why do you think a woman would lie to her six-year-old child? I honestly don't know. I mean, you're a mother. Can you put yourself into that position? Um, would, have you ever lied to your daughter? Uh, I will have to say that I probably had lied to her, but not in such a big thing. It is in, you know, something mm. that, like a dog or... Um, a huge, a huge possession. possession that you took out of her life and you told her that it just lost without any explanations. Yeah, so that was... Mm. Did you did you blame yourself? I don't think I blame myself, but I, it, it hit, hit me really hard. Like I didn't know, I didn't and know that still... it was that traumatic until years ago. Yeah, years later. Now I'm as an adult. You know how I start adopting dogs <laughs> a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. I encounter yeah. a black dog, and look exactly like the puppy that I had, for just one afternoon. I wonder. I know that in the past <laughs> I've lied to people because I didn't want to hurt them. So maybe. Oh uh, yeah, that's one thing, but. I don't know. I just feel like, like, like I said, from what I understand about my our mother, it's just that she doesn't want to take the responsibility of looking after a dog. And you know how, I, I don't want to use the word terrible, but how incap, in, uh, what's the word? Uh, incapable. Incapable of being with an animal, you know? Oh, yeah. Our mum does not like animals. <laughs> yeah. And like, like I, yeah, I wouldn't I mean, know when I was, you know, when I was younger. I w wouldn't know yeah. about that. Yeah. Um. Okay. So your turn. Like, uh, do you have any childhood tra trauma or sadness? Well, I don't have. I wouldn't. Well, I have one. 
memory that is very similar to yours, although instead of a puppy, there were sea monkeys. Oh, yeah, that's right. Do you know about the story? I, I remember you mentioned it, yeah. So I think I was 10 or 11 when I had a birthday party and one of my white friends bought me sea monkeys. Now, y'all who don't know sea monkeys, I don't know how to explain <laughs> it. They're, yeah, there's, so you basically get this little container mm-hmm. uh, and it's kind of flat, but like also it's like a water bottle. Yeah, um, it's, it's a water it's bottle. It's almost like a flask. Yeah, uh-huh. And then you put um, some sort of powder inside with water and then these bacterial shit grow, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, Is that and right? then it moves around so see, in the water. Yeah, and it moves around in the water. So one one day I went ahead and birthed this whole society of sea monkeys and then I went to school and then I got home and they disappeared. Like um, I had put them on dad's desk, mm-hmm. you know, dad's office yeah. at home. And then when I got back home, they just, the whole thing would had gone, mm-hmm. like not even the bottle. Mm-hmm. And I asked mum, oh, where are my sea monkeys? <laughs> and then she said, oh, um, I don't know what she said, actually. What did she say? I think she said they tipped over. Uh-huh. She said something like they tipped over. So uh-huh. maybe... They spilled. <laughs> maybe they spilled. Uh-huh. But but she never... What, what was interesting was she never apologised. Uh-huh. She probably didn't think it was a fault. <laughs> Like, she thought, and also, <laughs> I feel sorry for my mother now looking back because, like, up uh-huh. until maybe like a year ago, no, no, not that, not that recent, but I grew up with a horrible temper, right, Hell? Like, wasn't I that ill tempered as a kid? Didn't I chuck hissy fits? Yeah, you did. <laughs> oh, okay, so I think I- we'll, we'll all reflect of how our tantrums. Yeah, I had a bad um, tantrum. But also once, I bossed people yeah. around. Like I even bossed <laughs> mum around, right? So I think <laughs> the reason why she didn't really fess up was... Because there's always a clash between always you and knew, her. Yeah, because she feared that I would lash out at her. And, and that, I think, made me repulsed by myself. Like I was repulsed by my own behaviour or like this repulsed mm-hmm. by the fact that my own mother... You know, like me at the age mm. of 11, I made my own mother fearful of me. Like, that's uh-huh. fucking crazy. Like, mm. I, I guess it made me realise I had power that I didn't want over my mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that's what she fears. It is her, probably you're destroying her mental well-being. Yeah. <laughs> I think all the kids are destroying their parents' mental well-being. Well, motherhood is mental illness, right? <laughs> I guess I just want to mention the fact that, like, I talk about how my countless psychologists have mostly been white, but I have to say that I have had, like, two or three, uh, no, yeah, two or three um, women of colour psychologists who I've had, and one of them was not helpful at all. She was around my age. I guess there's nothing wrong with, you know, having a therapist around your, the same age as her, um, as your patient. But she definitely did not get me at all. She didn't relate to you or no, feeling empathized. No, at all. And she was one of those, um, she was one of those Asians that did not talk about race. Okay. You so know? she like wouldn't, she just she wouldn't understand. Completely, yeah. 
She will have fellows through white culture and white society and all that. She completely uh, ignored the fact that she was a person who wore an Asian face, and I found uh-huh. that really violent. Like, mm-hmm. to, it's almost like someone coming into, um, like, rocking up at your door, and he's wearing a mask, and mm-hmm. you say, "Okay, you can come in, but don't wear the mask." And they're like, "I'm not wearing a mask," but clearly oh, they're, yeah, they're a in mask. denial. It's like, yeah, and I hate that's so. I find that really violent. Like, it really, really affects me violently, psychologically. And so, like, even though I say, oh, all my, all my um, psychologists have been white, doesn't mean that just, doesn't mean that the psychologists who have not been white have been, like, I'm saying just because someone is the same race as you doesn't mean they'll get you immediately. De- definitely. Yeah, yeah. 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 Like, um, my, the one therapist who has changed my life was Italian, but I don't think that that had anything to do with her Italianness, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps um, that she has a very similar upbringing or culture acknowledgement to you. Oh, maybe, yeah, or perhaps definitely. But um, I think what bothers me about conversations around um, mental illness is that often, like I haven't. I haven't really come across many long-term investigative uh, reportage or kind of cultural analyses about how extremely um, racialized or sort of lack of racial um, discussions about mental illness. So what I'm saying is this. Um, this is thing that happens when I come across an article or a story about an individual who suffers from mental illness. So... Before I see a picture of them, I already have this image in my head of what they would look like. They're white, they're relatively young, and they probably went to a good school, one with a lot of money, and they probably grew up in a wealthy suburb too. They have professional parents, they live in a house, they took overseas holidays, they know how to ski, you know? So I want to be clear here and say I have nothing against white people, obviously, What I'm trying to say here is that there must be a reason why I have this image in my head and there must be a reason why nine times out of ten I am right about this image. And that's not to say that who that's that's not to say those whose stories are being told are making it up or their threshold for pain or tolerance or suffering is less than other people's, you know. No, not at all. I wanna know what I wanna know is why this image of the quote unquote mentally ill patient is someone who more often than not ticks all the same boxes. You know? Like, it can't be that people of colour suffer less mental illness, right? No. Mm-hmm. Anyone. Yeah, I, the, the mental illness doesn't discriminate. It no, happens to anyone. I wonder if it could be simply that we are prioritising certain people's stories over others and whether that has to do with why these people's stories are being exposed. We are being exposed to other ones that we hear from only exclusively, you know? Like when I when I Google or when I type into Shutterstock um, mental illness, I'm just bombarded with images of white people, you know, and it, it uh-huh. just makes me think. Oh, perhaps you need to use like Chinese type, you know, type the word in Chinese. That's why yeah, you probably but, come you out. Know, white people are the default, you know, like it forces us, it forces me to think, to ask these questions like who gets ac- access to mental health services and 
whose stories rise to the top and whose stories are given the scope and the spectrum of different layers, you know? Yeah. And there's definitely um, a, a lot more, like, like I said, you know, in the first two re the research papers I've just mentioned earlier, um, there's not enough research or surveys. And the articles, it, it had, I took a while to actually look up articles um, regarding to Asian Americans or Asian Australians' um, mental health. And they, most of the articles will have said that, you know, um, like either Asian Americans or Asian Australians have, are less likely to seek mental health services than whites. And put aside that the, um, you know, the community or the family pressure or thinking that discussion of mental health is concerned as a taboo, um, there's very limited access. Um, even if I, I'm just talking in general, is in my social group, um, my social circles, um, if I brought up talking about mental health, I'm, I'm happy to say that my closer friends that they all they all do are very initiative to seek um, help even for like therapy I don't know um, relationship counseling or look up um, you know just Google for um, like problem solving if there's a certain mental concern but there are still a lot of people that are my acquaintance if I brought up the topic um, they wouldn't want to go in and talk about it. They will say, like, some sometimes there's just an acquaintance telling me that, oh, I'm, I'm feeling like this and that and that. And because in my position, I'm not a um, therapist or a counsellor or a mental health profession, I'll say that. But I can pick up the signs. I'll say that, okay, um, perhaps you want to talk to your GP and refer you to, like, a mental health professional, you know, to, to look into your issue. And they will immediately become defensive by saying that, oh, no, I, I don't think I need it. You know, <laughs> I just need someone to talk, talk to. That's terrible. But it, it, it cycles. Like, it's like six months later, this person brought up the same, same, yeah, the same story and the same issue. Yeah. Um, I think there's a reticence for us to seek help because – in helping, we are seen as in asking and seeking for help. We're seen as weak, right? Mm, yeah, like we're, yeah. There's we're a mentality about the optics of how it would look to us, and I think uh, we are our obviously, you know, we are our biggest critics. So we shame ourselves by having this narrative run through our heads that say if we seek help, we are weak or you know, um, damaged or whatever, um, that's really unkind. And we have maybe as women more of these cognitive um, disabling ideas thrust upon us from a very young age. You know, we're always taught we should cater to other people's needs and put others before ours, our own. And um, our value is very much rooted in this idea of how capable we are to accommodate the other the other mostly being men you know uh, and why would you not do that i mean when when we still live in, live in a world where women are rewarded for being for accommodating to men you know uh, it's very hard to push against that 
Um, Brie Lee had a fantastic uh, memoir, I think written two years ago, called Eggshell Skull. And one thing I loved about, one thing that I loved in her memoir was when she kept harping on about how even despite the fact that she had a lot of privilege and she had a boyfriend and the most supportive parents and the most supportive friends like and a father who was an ex-cop like she had ticked every single box in order for her um, attempt to bring her um, past perpetrator Um, someone had um, sexually assaulted her as a child she was trying to take him to court even though she had all those uh, all the right tools to fight him she still felt really bad inside and it was still an excruciatingly hard emotional psychological um, fight and the reason she could do it was um, well I guess she's just such a strong human being but I loved how she kept recognizing that she had all those things and yet she still tried to fight the battle and it was still hard and I guess when I think about that um, story it makes me realize why so many of so many of the rest of us who are not white or privileged or have a father as an ex-cop you know even one tiny difference makes makes a sort of dent in our decision of whether or not to speak out and reach out for help you know like um yeah yeah i think i think she i'm not i can't speak for her but i i feel like um, when she's talking about her own story, she's putting it out to public, and I'm sure there will be a lot of women that can feel related to her experience. And in doing so, she might be helping other women to recover. I think you, you talk. I, I think um, sharing your stories it's like a therapeutical path. Like for me, it is. You know, I, I have to you know let it out. Um, so that's why I think communication is such a important um solution for many who and isn't that ostensibly what therapy is yeah yeah it's being able to find the words to articulate your experience and this whole thing of communication like we haven't touched on this but this is a whole other thing about asian cultures not having the the same sort of uh, ideas around open communication that Western society has, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and on particular on the emotion of sadness, I wanted just to touch on this that um, I, I do feel like um, in our culture that sadness was uh, tend to be suppressed when we were younger. Of course, I'm relating back to Tiger Tail again. Um, we were often told that crying doesn't really solve problem, and instead of the comfort that we get, we were told with the false resilience. Um, I, I found this is particularly bad for um, maybe Asian men or just men or boys in general. Um, I feel like when you're suppressed um, sadness and the replacement is usually anger or resent. And yeah, resentment and it becomes the lack of empathy and you cannot connect or cannot you know eventually relate to others who are in pain. Um I feel personally this is probably one of the relation the reason that um, a lot of conservative conservative slash Asian marriages you know from my own observation of course the breakdown is not merely the lack of communication but it relates back how 
um, gender stereotype of cha- uh, childhood that it has ingrained into the re- reaction of those emotions. Um, in saying that, um, girls were mostly comforted and cared when they were sad, whereas um, boys were being told to toughen up and not display emotions. Yeah, and if they're not receiving adequate care or emotional care when they're young, and how do we expect them to be growing up as a, you know, becoming a husband or partner for someone else? Yeah, to care for someone else. And, you know, eventually they don't, they, they can't, like, I guess it's like communicate. Most people say that it's a communication breakdown in a marriage, but um, sorry, I'm trailing off here a little bit. But I think it's just um, deep down is that the, men probably just block themselves or never been taught how to understand yeah, and th- the emotional impact. That certainly isn't just exclusive to the Asian societies, right? Mm, like there's yeah, so much toxic yeah. masculinity in every single culture. So con- to conclude that um, I want to say that stop stereotyping and stop, you know, having this stigmatism about, you know, mental illness. And I, I know that uh, Asian family like when I was growing up, you you tend to um, uh, not permit uh, the young one to speak. Like there's a term, it's called yo a wu zui. So they have ears but not mouths, you know, stopping them, expressing themselves will probably have a later consequences of their mental. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and suffering from depression or anxiety is not abnormal and Seeking help is not a form of weakness. I think seeking help has always been... Seeking help has always felt like me such a courageous and beautiful and... um, Brave? (laughs) No, I hate that word, brave. It's seeking help for me. I have never, ever... Like, I've shamed myself for a lot of different things, but never to seek therapy. Like, I think for me, I mean, this, our conversation has been narrow in the sense that we didn't touch on heaps of other subjects we can talk about in terms of, you know, like how, you know, we had, we didn't go into psychiatry, you know, like being medicated we didn't go into schizophrenia or bipolar or ADHD. You know, there is a massive field of there, um, mm. massive area. Of yeah, but that's we because it's into. very professional level. But like, if if we're just talking about, I guess, the garden variety. No, mm. I shouldn't say that. Never. I, I would never make a joke of mental illness. Um, but I guess just from the very uh, fundamental, basic conversation we've had so far today Uh, for me speaking out has always been a way to uh, rebel against that very conservative environment that I was brought up in so yeah um, really forcing myself to be articulate and having ways to express myself has been fundamentally a a way I've come into this world as a a grown adult woman like I feel like it's only been the last three or four years where I've 
really stepped into myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I literally have no idea what the fuck I was doing all through my 20s. Like, mm-hmm. like my mother chose my university degree. Like, she decided what I was going to study because I had absolutely zero idea of my own agency like I literally had no brain until I was like 27 I I think seriously like I was always following other people's rules and always following other people's yeah I was always following other people's ideas of what constitutes as a valuable precious thing like always spending my life trying to find ways to validate myself through other people's terms like it seems ludicrous and I think part of me, I think I'm get better at this now, but part of me still has sort of a residual shame with thinking, God, I spent all those years trying to... Because mm-hmm. it's just set up for you and then you just take it. I have no don't... idea, like sleepwalking, I guess. Like I often think about... It's a, you're on autopilot and you yeah. don't... Yeah. It's, I guess... Yeah, and it's so sad. Like, our lives are so ridiculously short. Like, it's so short. And and I often think about this one quote that this woman I used to teach with told me. She said that she was, like, in her mid-40s or f- I think 40s. Yeah, she said that she had married and then had children um, quite quite soon after her marriage. And she said something like, I was married at 21 and then nine months uh, like a year later I had kids and then from the time I had kids onwards until now I feel like I've been sleepwalking like she says she literally cannot remember her life until um up like she she said she couldn't remember her life in clear detail yeah that's something I want to talk about yeah I I think there's such a sad like when we're going to talk about uh 1982 we will definitely talk about uh, marriage, motherhood, and marriage. Yeah, motherhood for woman and, and yeah, and yeah, Asian yeah. and, uh, and for an Asian woman. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's such a great topic, but I think that might be the reason why I like am mm. so afraid to be a mother because I feel like I'll just become like all the other women mm. who have ever been in my family. Mm. They've just been totally erased from history. And that frightens me so much. No, no, no. I don't want to be erased. erased. I didn't. I don't. I haven't erased women of our family who even passed away. They they hold a very deep. Um, uh, I don't know how to describe it, but they hold very deeply in my heart. Both of our grandmothers. Of yeah. course. Yeah. Um. So, uh, to end this episode, <laughs> which. Oh <laughs> yes. Yeah. We've had a long conversation. Yeah. <laughs> So anyone who feels that they might be suffering from depression or anxiety um, will definitely urge you to seek professional help. Um, Australians, of course, they can call Lifeline on 13 11 14. And wherever you are in the world, um, please do seek help. And yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, it's been great to chat, guys. Uh Make sure you review us on Apple um, Podcasts and uh, we will see you next week. Eat well and be safe.